Good morning. My name is Bob Greenwood, and I serve here at Grace Fellowship Church as the counseling pastor and one of, one of your elders. And it's my privilege this morning to be able to introduce our guest speaker to you. Heath Lambert serves as the executive director at the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. ACBC is the largest biblical counseling organization in the world with certified counselors and counseling centers in 18 countries. Dr. Lambert is a, the associate professor at the biblical, at, of biblical counseling at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and their undergraduate institution, Boyce College, where he has taught classes on biblical counseling and Christian ministry since 2006. He also serves as the Associate Dean of Applied Studies and the Chairman of the Department of Biblical Counseling at Boyce College. Dr. Lambert is a frequent conference speaker and has written the following books, The Biblical Counseling Movement After Adams, Counseling the Hard Cases, Finally Free, uh, which you can find most of those in our resource center. And on a personal note, I first heard about Dr. Lambert's name is when it was announced that he would become the new executive director after Randy Patton. And you know here at Grace Fellowship, we love Randy Patton, and we, uh, we, we miss him. Then, I, then the following year, I heard uh, Dr. Lambert speak at the annual conference, and after hearing him speak, my response was, wow, this man loves God, loves God's people, and loves God's church. Folks, you're in for a real treat today. Please join me in with a, giving a warm welcome to Dr. Heath Lambert. <clears throat> Thanks, brother. Thank you. It's so good to be back with you. This is my second time being here, and uh, I always feel like I should apologize because um, your pastor, Brad Bigney, when he preaches, is like Tigger. And I feel like Winnie the Pooh. So it's like you normally get like Tigger bouncing around all over here. And then I'm like Winnie the Pooh with like my head in a pot of honey or something like that. So I'm very, very sorry. I think he's going to be back soon. Uh, And I'm just going to fill in for today. He asked me to speak uh, about the gospel, mental illness, and medication. So, my sermon title this morning is The Gospel, Mental Illness, and Medication. <laughs> and I am glad he asked me to talk about that, even though for most of you, you might wonder what that has to do with you. Uh, it, it might sound like uh, a sermon on the gospel, mental illness, and medication might sound like... Um, a sermon on the gospel and air conditioning repair. Or uh, the gospel and tire replacement. I mean, you can, it can seem kind of technical and important. Stuff that we want somebody to know about, but it doesn't really affect me. And I don't think that's true. And I want to help you see that by looking at a passage of scripture and telling you a story. The, uh, the passage of scripture is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 5, verse 5. We'll pay attention to that today. We won't have time to unpack all of it, but to glance at a few of the high points along the way. And this is an important passage because the apostle Paul in it is talking about his ministry 
And he's talking about his ministry, which he undertook in the midst of much trouble, and that he took four people who were experiencing a lot of trouble. And he gives us a description of that and, and what he thinks of when he thinks of ministry in this text. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, this is what God's word says. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also be manif- may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. But life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it's all for your sake. So that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Let's pray. Father in heaven, watch over us and help us. Help us to understand this passage. Your spirit gave it to us for our instruction and for our sanctification. And so I pray that you would use it for that purpose. Your spirit has called us into the service of the Christian ministry. 
And Father, sometimes that's going to mean ministering to those with really complicated problems. And so help us to be more like Christ. Help us to be better servants of the church because we were here today. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you the story of a woman that I know named Paulette. Paulette is, uh, was one of the most troubled people I ever met in my entire life. By the time she was 45 years old, her life was completely trashed. She was a wildly promiscuous woman. Uh, sleeping around with many, many men over the course of her uh, uh, young adult and adult life. Uh, She was addicted to alcohol. She would have been uh, diagnosed uh, and, in fact, was diagnosed with several mental illnesses. At one point or another, she was diagnosed with uh, depression She was diagnosed at one point with obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She uh, had uh, what is currently called alcohol abuse disorder. Uh, They didn't uh, use this language back then, but she would have been diagnosed with hoarding disorder if that diagnosis had existed back then. She was a violently angry woman and was uh, terribly abusive to her children, to her husband. And by the time, as I said, she was 45, her life was in the toilet. She was broke. Uh, She had no one around her anymore. She had burned every relational bridge. All the men she had slept with didn't care about her anymore. She uh, was in an alcohol treatment center, had no idea where she was going to go or what she was going to do when she got out. And she was hopeless. By 45, her life had been trashed. That is a lady I know named Paulette with a list of mental illnesses. Some of you in this room have been diagnosed with some of those mental illnesses or others. When we talk about mental illness and medication, we're not talking about a thing. We're talking about people. We're talking about individuals who struggle, and we're talking about individuals who struggle in this room. And so it is a matter of crucial importance that we figure out what in the world the gospel has to say about this. Before we can figure out what the gospel says about it, we need to know what it is. So what is mental illness? Well, I'm going to give you the definition. Uh, Mental illness just officially is Uh, the diagnoses that are listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, so the DSM. There's, um, we're now on DSM-5, it's the fifth edition of that big book, so there's four others, but there's textual revisions in each edition, so this is actually more like the tenth version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in the last 60 years or so. And if if a disorder is listed in the DSM, and you are diagnosed with that disorder, then by definition, you have a mental illness. But what is a mental illness? Well, here is the definition of the DSM-5. A mental disorder is a syndrome characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, 
emotion regulation, or behavior that reflects a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or developmental processes underlying mental functioning. Mental disorders are usually associated with significant distress in social, occupational, or other important activities. An expectable or culturally approved response to a common stressor or loss, such as the death of a loved one, is not a mental disorder. Socially deviant behavior, political, religious, or sexual, and conflicts that are primarily between the individual and society are not mental disorders unless the deviance or conflict results from a dysfunction in the individual as described above. So there you go. (laughs) You uh, chuckle because that's complicated. What is that? So there's the definition, but now we feel maybe even more in the weeds than we were before. Well, it would actually be possible to unpack that definition and say a lot of things about it, but the reality is the definition doesn't get us very far no matter how much we understand about it. And the reason is that definition has been highly criticized by secular psychological professionals. So I'm going to tell you the assessment of that definition from unbelieving psychology professionals. This is not the attack of the DSM from any kind of Christian. None of the people I'm going to talk about here give a rip about Jesus or the Bible or the church. These are just secular professionals weighing in on this definition. The first guy is a guy named Eric Masel. He's a PhD in psychology, and he wrote an article in Psychology Today when this definition was released. And the reason he wrote this article is because the definition is a problem, and the reason is it's a problem is that's the definition, as I said, in DSM-5. The definition in DSM-4 was a different definition. And the definition for mental illness in DSM-3 was a different definition. And different organizations that are concerned to help people with mental illnesses, they have different definitions for mental illness. So he is talking about how the definition is different. And here is what Eric Masel, writing in Psychology Today, says. The very idea that you can radically change the definition of something without anything in the real world changing and with no new increases in knowledge or understanding is remarkable. Remarkable until you realize that the thing being defined does not exist. It's completely easy, effortless really, to change the definition of something that does not exist to suit your current purposes. In fact, there's hardly any better proof of the non-existence of a non-existing thing than that you can define it one way today, another way tomorrow, and a third way on Sunday. That's psychology today. Here is another critique from two men who actually served on the DSM committees writing the definitions and the descriptions for the mental illnesses. Their names are Herb Cutchins and Stuart Kirk. And here's their evaluation of their own work. The category of mental illness itself is an invention, a creation. It may be a good and useful invention or it may be a confusing one. DSM is a compendium of inventions. And like a large and popular mutual fund, DSM's holdings are constantly changing as the manager's estimates and beliefs about the value of those holdings change. Here's one last one. This one's very significant. It's by a guy named Alan Francis, who is the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Duke University. And Alan Francis was the chairman of DSM-IV. 
He was the head of the project. And here is what he said about his work. I have reviewed dozens of definitions of mental disorder and have written one myself in DSM-IV, and I find none of them the slightest bit helpful, either in determining which conditions should be considered mental disorders and which not, or in deciding who is sick and who is not. Now, this is a frustrating reality because if you read Newsweek, we're led to believe that here's all this stuff we absolutely know about mental illness, and here's all the stuff we have to do to treat mental illness. But when you read the people who work on the project, they essentially say, we don't know. (laughs) Now, they go a little bit far. I I would think that we as Christians should push back a little bit on Maisel and psychology today and on Cutchins and Kirk because it's not true that they don't exist. These problems do exist. Paulette was a drunk. She was sad. She was obsessing over things. She did have extremes of mood. But, But what these guys, these experts, what their statements teach us is that there's just so much that we don't know about these problems. It reminds us that we as 21st century Americans need not to be quite so cocky. We, we live in a day and an age where you can, you can leave here and drive to a hospital and get a picture taken of your brain. That's never been possible before. In most places in the world today, it's still not possible. But you can go and get a picture of your brain. They can see inside of it. And we start to think with all that technology that we've got some junk figured out. And what these experts are telling us is that we need to be humble. We need humility. The reality is what we know that they don't know is we live in a broken world. That's not just something we say. That's something that is true. That's something that we experience. That's something that we know. We live in a broken world with problems we cannot understand. And with problems we don't know how to fix. And with problems that we're not going to be able to fix. In fact, all of the really, really important problems are problems we will not be able to fix. So... When experts in psychology and psychiatry write and they say, we don't know. As Christians, we're not shocked by that. We say, yes, we we knew that. We live in a broken world with limited knowledge, with limited fixes for the problems that we face. So here's what I want to do. Let's forget about the definition. Since, Since by the experts' own testimony, we don't know what is purported that we know. And let's say that mental illnesses are what most people mean when they say, I think he's got a mental illness, or I think I've got a mental illness. What most people mean when they say those things is they're talking about hard problems, really hard problems, that we don't understand and we don't know how to fix. They're real problems. They cause real struggle and real pain. We just don't understand. We don't know what's in the body and we don't know what's in the spirit and we don't know in the spirit what's sin and what's suffering. We're we're having a hard time sorting it out. We don't know what comes from past experiences and what comes from current. We just, we don't know. 
It's a hard problem we don't understand and we don't know how to fix it. Do they need drugs? Do they need to pray? Do they need to repent? Do they need to go away for a week? You know, what, what do they need? We don't know. A mental illness, for our purposes this morning, is a hard problem that we don't understand and we don't know how to fix. And what I want to consider with you today is the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ revolutionizes our understanding of hard problems that we don't quite grasp and we don't know how to fix. And I want to see how the gospel revolutionizes our understanding of those problems in four ways. First, human beings exist in a body and a soul. Human beings exist in a body and a soul. We saw this in chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is one verse. We could look at hundreds of other verses in the Old and New Testament. But what it teaches, this and others, is that as human beings, you and I have two aspects. We have a physical aspect here called the outer self, our body. And we have a spiritual aspect here called the inner self, our soul. A human person is a tight combination of a body and a soul. Now, you probably know that. All right, when are we, when are we getting to the really important part here? Because I knew we have a body and a soul. But here's the thing. Don't take it for granted that you know that because nobody else does. You in this room and our brothers and sisters in Christ and other places across the world, we know that we have a body and a soul because God told us. Unbelievers don't know that, particularly the ones in secular psychology. They, uh, secular psychology, one of the philosophical principles is the one of materialism. That is, um, all that exists is physical stuff. There isn't spiritual What a human being is, is a body with a brain and chemicals. There's no spirit there. Well, as soon as we say, you have a soul, we've just revolutionized the understanding of hard problems that we don't understand and don't know how to fix. And by the way, when we say you have a body, we mean something way better than what secular people mean. Because God creates the physical body, and he's the one who gives the physical body meaning. So we think better things about the body than anybody else does. Because we say God made this body. We say that God gives honor to this body. We say that God sent his son to have a body. We say that God sent the spirit to live in our body. Christians honor the body way more than any secular unbeliever psychologist ever can. And we can see the soul in a way that's not possible for anybody else to see. And just imagine how important this is. See, what DSM does, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, is it jumbles all kinds of problems together because they don't see physical and spiritual. They only see physical. So in the DSM, you will find alcohol abuse disorder. The Bible calls that drunkenness. They can't say drunkenness because drunkenness is a moral category. That's a sin and you have to repent for that. We're not doing that. 
as we suppress the truth in unrighteousness when we're an unbeliever. But alcohol abuse disorder is in the same book as autism, which is a physical problem. But there's no way to make a distinction between the two unless you have the Bible saying you have a body and you have a soul. We can understand physical issues. We can understand spiritual issues. So Christians with 2 Corinthians 4.16 are less confused than a psychologist with a PhD because we can see things they can't see. What this passage allows us to do, just this one, we could look at others. It allows us to embrace the physical realities that underlie hard problems that we don't understand and don't know how to fix. This is biblical justification for the importance of physical care. This means it's not wrong when you go to the medical doctor because you're struggling with a hard problem that you don't understand and you don't know how to fix. This means it's good to take medicine for physical problems. This means Tylenol is a blessing. This means... <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> This means a cup of hot tea is a blessing. Because God made us to be human beings with a body, we can care for this body. And Christians are the first people to embrace that because we think better things about the body than anybody else does. But it also allows us to embrace the spiritual side of hard problems that we don't understand and don't know how to fix. And this is what nobody else can do. When you say to a person who is sinfully angry, you must repent. It sounds to a secular psychologist like you are a redneck who hates the body, who disses medication. But that's not true at all. We're just believing the Bible. The reality is not all hard problems that we don't understand are medical problems. Very many Hard problems that we don't understand and don't know how to fix are spiritual problems that require the grace of Jesus. That require repentant faith for sin. That require humble trust in the care of God for suffering. Well, you, you can't say that if you don't see that human beings have a soul as well as a body. Many will reject that. If you're an unbeliever, you're going to reject it sooner or later. You know what that means? It means that you in this room are the only ones who can really help. Because if you try to treat a spiritual problem with a drug, is it going to work? No, that's not going to work. You should, you should treat physical problems with physical interventions, absolutely. Surgery, medical checkups, doctor's visits, uh, drug therapies, absolutely. But you can't medicate problems of the soul. That's what we need Jesus for. And as long as we're the ones who see the soul, we'll have to be the ones who see Jesus and we'll be the ones who can offer care where nobody else can. Human beings exist in a body and a soul. That's one way that the gospel revolutionizes our understanding of hard problems. Here's a second way. Suffering makes sense. Suffering makes sense. In a world where there are hard problems that we don't understand and we don't know how to fix, where we're suffering in that kind of way, Jesus helps us make sense of those things. In verses 17 to 18, for this light 
momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, it's possible to be offended by that. If you think about Paulette, who no man around, overcome with depression, overcome with obsessions and compulsions, overcome with extreme mood vacillations, drunk and broke. If you look at her and say, your problems are light. That's not going to go over real well. Paul isn't demeaning big problems. Paul had some big problems. Paul said of his own ministry, I'm afflicted in every way. I'm crushed. I'm perplexed. I am persecuted. Paul was a person with big, hard afflictions, and he did ministry to people with complicated afflictions. When the Apostle Paul calls those afflictions light, he's not minimizing them. He's making a point. He's saying, no matter how serious your problems are, they are light compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in you compared to the eternal weight of glory that is coming to you. You have to know Jesus. You have to have the Bible. And you have to have heavenly hope to be able to say such insane, crazy things. See, if all we have is physical realities, if all we are is a body with chemicals and hormones then all we're going to do is seek a physical cure. And when we get to hard problems that we don't understand and we don't know how to fix, we will despair. Because we're out. What the gospel does is it says, your suffering makes sense. What the gospel does is it says, your affliction strengthens you. Your pain and suffering trains you to look away from the things that you can see which are dying and towards the things you cannot see which will last forever. It's very kind of God to use suffering to turn us away from that which cannot last and towards that that can The gospel revolutionizes our understanding of hard problems because when we have hard problems that we don't understand and we don't know how to fix, it makes us say, come Lord Jesus. It makes us long for that time when he's going to wipe every tear from our eye and take away all the problems and we'll live with him forever. The gospel also revolutionizes our understanding of hard problems that we don't understand and we don't know how to fix by requiring Christian ministry. Christian ministry is crucial. You know what, uh, when you read about mental illness, you know what many people call mental illnesses? They, some people refer to them as the no casserole problem. What does that mean? It means in the church in particular, if you have a problem, you're going to get a casserole from somebody. All right, if you, uh, 
If you get diagnosed with cancer and you're going to have chemotherapy, there's going to be your Sunday school class bringing you a bunch of casseroles. If you shatter your ankle and you're laid up for a couple of weeks, you're going to get a casserole out of it. Uh, If you give birth to a child and your husband is an idiot like I am and doesn't know how to make dinner, people will sign up and give you casseroles. But what many people point out is that if you get diagnosed with a mental illness, the church doesn't bring a casserole. You get diagnosed with depression. You get diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder. You get diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And nobody brings you a casserole because we don't know what to do. People are nervous. They're nervous, not about the person mostly, usually, but they're nervous because this is a hard problem that I don't understand and I don't know what to do. Well, when there are hard problems that we don't understand and we don't know what to do, the gospel call is do ministry. Do Christian ministry. Paul says in verse 5, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul calls us to service. He calls us to ministry. He says in verse 15, for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We, we do things for the sake of others. We serve others. We do Christian ministry. What kind of ministry can you do with people who've been diagnosed with heart problems that you don't understand and you don't know how to respond? Well, you can do two things. First of all, there's things that you can do. There's things you can do. In chapter 4, verses 10 to 11, it says, We always carry in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us, but life in you. What he's saying is, as Christian ministers, I'm giving up my life for you. I'm serving you. I'm dying in my service so that you can live. You can do this for people who have hard problems that you don't understand. What what, what can you do? What does ministry look like? Let me make this real easy. If you would do it for somebody who'd just given birth to a baby... Do it to somebody who's been diagnosed with a heart problem you don't understand. You don't know how to help. If you would coordinate people in your Sunday school class to make casseroles for a lady who's just given birth to a baby, then coordinate some people to make some casseroles. If you would get people together to help with child care for somebody who's just given birth to a baby, then coordinate child care for people who've been diagnosed with these problems. If you would organize some people to go over to their house and help clean up, then organize some people and go over to their house and help clean up. If you would do it for somebody going through a hard time that you do understand, then do the same thing for somebody going through a hard time that you don't understand. We can do Christian ministry in the things that we do, and then we can also do Christian ministry in what we say. 
in Ephesians 4, verse 13, it says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak. When you believe the gospel, you speak. If you would speak the gospel to a person with a hard problem that you do understand, then you need to speak gospel words to somebody with a hard problem that you don't understand. Now, what do you say? Well, you need to figure that out. You must figure out what you are going to say to people with hard problems that you don't understand. In fact, let me tell you, you are in one of the best places in the world to figure out how to do that. Your church, your leadership uh, is deadly serious about helping you know what to say to people with hard problems. That's why they're having that CDT coming up. You, you should go to that CDT. If you, I can't imagine why you wouldn't go. If, if you've been here and you have not gone through that counseling and discipleship training, you are missing out on learning how to say the things that broken and hurting people need to hear. So you need to go figure that out. And Brad didn't even tell me to, to say that. You need to go figure it out. But what do you say until you get to the CDT and until you finish it? Well, there are worse things than something like this. You know what? I don't understand what you're going through. But I know it's really hard. And I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know that I am here for you. And I want you to know that I'm going to walk with you through this. And so what can I do? And just keep saying that until you're done with the CDT. Okay? (laughs) The gospel compels us to and, and revolutionizes our understanding of ministry in the context of hard problems. Fourth way, the gospel revolutionizes hard problems that we don't understand and we don't know how to fix. It teaches us that those diagnosed with mental illness need the gospel more than they need anything else. It teaches us that those diagnosed with mental illness need the gospel more than any other reality. Now listen, I have received some of the strongest criticism I've ever received in my life for saying things like that. Uh, I had somebody say that I was, that was deadly talk to talk with people. like You're pointing people to Jesus and away from medication. I'm not doing that. I just made that point. The, the Bible doesn't do that. But you know what? It's, it's fair, to me, I think it's entry-level Christianity that we talk about the grace of Jesus Christ because the grace of Jesus Christ is the most important reality in the whole universe. And everybody needs it. You need the gospel more than you need air. It would be better for you to believe the gospel right this minute and choke to death than to go on breathing the rest of the day and not believe the gospel. What's deadly is to say, 
let's just, let's just take care of people's physical bodies. Well, you know what? Take care of your physical body. Live to be 100 and then die and go to hell. It will not work. Your body will fail you. The gospel is the most important reality, and people diagnosed with heart problems need it more than they need any other thing. The gospel is light in darkness. Chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. People who are struggling with hard problems are in darkness, and they need light. Light that Jesus gives. Verse 6 says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel is light for people who are overwhelmed with the darkness of hard problems. The gospel is renewal in the midst of decay. Verse 16, we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed Day by day, you can be renewed. You can grow in Jesus even as you struggle against a hard problem. And the gospel is eternal life extending beyond a sentence of death. The gospel is eternal life extending beyond a sentence of death. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. While we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we'd be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That passage... In verse 16, teach us that in this fallen world, Christians who have a body and a soul, they're moving in something of opposite directions. Our soul is growing up into Jesus and being renewed while our body is dying. The the outer man is dying, the inner man is being renewed. You know what that means? It means every medical treatment fails. If the chemo works... We're thankful for that, but you'll still die someday. If the medications cause the symptoms to abate, feel better for a little while, that's great. We're thankful for that. You'll still die. The president of the National Institutes for Mental Health gave an interview with PBS several years ago. And uh, they said, how do, you, how do you help people? They said, we can't help people. president of the National Institutes of Mental Health said, we can't help people. We can give people drugs, minimize their symptoms. We can have some, give them some strategies. But what people really need is meaning in their life and good relationships. And we can't provide that. He said people need meaning in their life. The unbelieving president of the National Institutes of Mental Health. I, the only thing to say after that is to talk about the gospel. You are dying. Every medical intervention you ever use, no matter how successful it is for a little while, will fail. But in Christ, your spirit is being renewed day by day. So we need the gospel more than we need anything else. 
And no matter what people say, we can't be silent about the gospel in the midst of such overwhelming problems. I only told you half of the story of Paulette. Uh, The rest of the story is that uh, Paulette uh, was my mother. Uh, She... uh, I was one of the children that she abused. I experienced her, all the things I talked about, the promiscuity, the drunkenness, the depression, the the whole nine. We were there for it. And uh, we were thankful that uh, my mom, by the time she was 45 with her life in the toilet, that really was, as it turned out, the last time she would drink in her life. But she was still miserable. Uh, she hated her life, and she was surrounded by people who hated her. She was still just mean as a snake. Um, in fact, some of my brothers were guilty of saying they liked it better when she was drinking. My mom's life didn't change until about 12 years after that when she repented of her sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. We didn't know when that happened, that she would be dead five years later. But over those five years, we saw a woman racked with hard problems that we didn't understand and know how to fix. We saw her be changed by the gospel of Jesus. We saw her become a chaste woman. We saw her become a woman who was kind and loving who loved to hold her grandkids and kiss them, who loved us, who read the Bible, who prayed. We saw Jesus take away her temper. One day she was, in fact, as she was on her deathbed, she was losing her temper with some nurses and uh, was cussing and hitting, and it was like this woman I'd seen before she got saved. And I said, Mom... What you're doing isn't good. And you're being so mean to these people who are trying to help you. And she started to cry. And she said, I know, but it just hurts so bad. And I said, well, Mom, do you know that Jesus could help you? And she said, I know it. And I was like, let's pray. And some of the last words that she ever spoke in her life were to pray to Jesus to forgive her for her anger against these women that were trying to help her and to give her grace and peace. And those women came back in the room and they tried to put the IV back in her arm and they didn't get it the first time or the second time or the third time or the fourth time. Her body had wasted away and there wasn't much left. And my mom sat there clutching the bed rail, praying, and I would hear her say Jesus every now and then. And my mom never lost her temper a day in her life again. Uh, Jesus took away the hard problem that we didn't understand or know how to fix. That's what we call good news. And you know how to speak it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to be the people who know the good news in the midst of really, really hard problems that we don't understand and we don't know how to fix. Help us to confess that we're a body and a soul. Help us to confess that we need to do ministry. Help us to confess that there's good news on the other side of suffering. And help us to do all that because we know how to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. 
We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.